Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, Your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part? It's completely free. A token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport or simply visit the SportMind Hub by googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next installment of the podcast series. Today, I welcome to the show ex-cricket professional Luke Sutton. Luke is currently the owner and running Activate Management, which is a sport management company for some of the most elite athletes in the UK and the world. He was kind enough to carve out some time for me today in his really busy and hectic schedule, and I'm really glad we're able to find this time because I think this is one of the most important podcasts I might have done to date. We really explore athletes' mental health. It's quite well documented that Luke really struggled and suffered with excessive alcohol consumption during his playing career. And he explores this with me in the podcast in a bit of detail and what this was like for him as a professional cricketer. He was very kind, open and honest with some really difficult subjects and I'm grateful that he was able to share this with me as well as you listening today. Luke has currently written three books and is in the process of writing his fourth book. And the one book in particular we spoke about was his book called Back from the Edge, Mental Health and Addiction for Sport. We explored topics such as triggers, the hedonic treadmill, and having a misbalance in life when it comes to professional elite sport. Towards the end of the podcast, he shares some amazingly positive messages in regard to some of the tools, ideas, and thoughts when athletes have this imbalance in their life. We also explore a lot of a lot of what Luke does currently to keep him in a good place mentally and emotionally, and I also ask him how he is able to use his story to help the athletes that he currently manages. I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with Luke today, and there was quite a lot of crossover around some of the habits and behaviors I think we both do and share together. But I believe this is such an important conversation and one that I would hope would spread far and wide. Being an athlete, and especially so when achieving and striving for success, rankings, prize money, and the status, and all those driving forces, they can throw up a massive mismatch and an imbalance in life. And Luke and I explore this in great detail in today's podcast. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. And without any further delay, please welcome Luke Sutton.
Luke Sutton, welcome to the show and thank you for joining me today. Um, for those that may not know you, could you maybe please give a brief introduction to yourself? Uh, golly, uh, I am. I'm a. Uh, I was a professional cricketer for nearly twenty years. Uh, I think I did seventeen or eighteen seasons. Um, uh, which and I retired back in two thousand eleven. Mm-hmm. And since then, I, I actually already had a business. The business working in sport prior to retiring, but since then, that business has grown and very much deals in sports management of high profile athletes of. Um, lots of different sports, as well as TV broadcasters, TV and radio broadcasters, and and other kind of sponsorship type work. Mm. Um, and that's pretty much the top and bottom of it, I think. Awesome. Well, listen, there, there, there's a there's a whole bunch of a journey that that I'd like to unpack with you today. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of work in regard to uh, athletes' mental health, trying to mentor a few athletes that have been struggling with a bit of that that area, and. We got put in touch by a mutual friend, Ollie Morgan, of ours, and it seemed a, a very, very cool, uh, cool place to launch off with. But so I think it's fair to say that you know you've been through a pretty tough journey in your life, and uh, you know professional cricketer sounds really glamorous and amazing, and what a lot of people want to get to. Um, but would you maybe be able to relive some parts of that with with me today? And and you know I'm sure we're going to maybe explore some of those key topics and maybe talk a little bit deeper about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an inter- interesting one because I don't, I don't see it as being I've had a tough journey. Actually, I think I, I've had some difficult things happen in my life, um, but I think difficult things happen in lots of people's lives. So I feel like, and it's it's interesting because the place I am in in my life now, I very much, which is real happiness and contentment and peace. I feel like everything as difficult as it was kind of brought me to where I am today and so I don't I I see it all as one journey but I I I think um you know the most significant things for me I I was I I took that kind of typical um young kid who was very talented and very determined highly competitive um who then moved into professional sport in my case professional cricket basically when I left school Mm -hmm. and I was absolutely geared for it you know I was ready I was ready for the dogfight of professional sport on every level really and you know I look back on it and through all of my cricket career even you know to the point where I was sharing dressing rooms with world-class players and I was captain of clubs I still don't think I was that good I I was just a real scrapper you know I, I could I could really fight it out but anyway I moved into professional sport um from school and kind of bedded in quickly and I was at Somerset at that time and then I did two or three seasons there sorry I did yes two or three seasons I moved to Derbyshire where I became club captain Mm -hmm. and and the most kind of senior player I guess even at a relatively young age and then in my uh as I was approaching my late 20s mid, mid to late 20s um I met a girl and I fell in love and um and it was a really young love um and it was it was everything to me at that time and she was wonderful and incredible and we were just on that be- beautiful journey of um what love is at that age and uh, or love is generally mm-hmm. and um it came to the end of the 2004 cricket season and it was the pen- penultimate game and we um we played away at Essex and we lost, which wasn't unusual in that season. And um, I had the option of coming home that night or 
going back the next day and i chose to stay down in essex with the guys and we had a few beers and i didn't get and i went home the next day because we the game finished late on that day and to cut a long story short uh nia was her name um had died died in a car crash that next morning wow and um you know it was it was like an atomic bomb going off in my life because i um and i'll add it and i'll add a bit into this story up to you know in a, in a moment but I was just um, not capable of handling that is the best way. And I already had a difficult relationship with alcohol, which was kind of a dark secret in my life, which I knew deep down. But at that point, I was just kind of fun. And I was a warrior on the field and a warrior off the field. And, you know, and my teammates loved me for it. And I thought that was my persona. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, this happened. And, you know, it's it hardly like I was, you know, a hugely high profile footballer but in Derbyshire I was club captain it was a big story within cricket and I just didn't know how to handle it and on lots and lots of different levels I didn't know I just and I think that's one of the hardest things with grief isn't it there's no kind of blueprint is there there's no manual as to how to handle it I didn't know if I was crying too much too little I didn't know whether I should be playing or not playing I, I just didn't know yeah. um but anyway one of the things that came out of that was um you know, that I, I just made everything in my life really extreme. Okay. Um, I was already a very extreme person, but this now went on to another level of kind of self-destruction, verging on kind of brilliance and an absolute insanity. You know, I, I trained beyond any normal reasonableness. I set up businesses. I worked constantly. I drank as hard as I could drink. You know, I took painkillers as much as I could. I was just, I was on it. And, but I, I, I kept surviving within professional cricket and actually thriving, you know, surviving and thriving. But internally, I know I was dying, but I was, I was on that. I was going on that hamster wheel as fast as I could. And I was like, I, I used to remember what Sorry, gone. Yeah, what was I'm interested because because that for me sorry to interrupt, but the um no. the hedonic treadmill comes to mind. I talk a lot about that, always striving for like these great successes. And as as pro sports men and women, you know, like the ego is a big part of this. What was what do you think was fueling that hedonic treadmill, if we can call it that? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question, and, and it's taken me many years and a lot of therapy to kind of get to a place where I understand it. But it it was like I was living my life going well just around the corner it's going to be enough or just over the hill I'm going to find this peace you know or this place of real contentment I used to romanticize about it in my life you know like there would be this moment that it would all make sense and it was a case of just charging as fast as I could as hard as I could until I got there without realizing that what I was doing meant I would never get there. You know, it was never that it was never enough. It was never, there was no, because the answers lay within me rather than something external, but it, you know, and, and, I, and I know this is not uncommon for other athletes who, who get on this kind of destructive path. They, they can achieve really great things, but it, it, it's actually killing them, you know, and, and it, eventually it will blow up. And, mm. you know, for me, I, I got to 35 and, uh, I still had two years left on my contract, but you know, my lifestyle was just in every way, completely unmanageable. My problems with alcohol now become a real problem Mm -hmm. and I was struggling to to hide it as best I could, but I was, 
just my, my, my intensity to everything was just too much. And I ended up in rehab. Um, and I was deemed at that moment, I was a success, you know, and yet there I was in rehab with, um, prostitutes, you know, heroin addicts, lawyers, other, you know, priests, you know, the full range going, what am I doing here? And at that point, I just, I just completely, I completely broke down basically Mm -hmm. completely broke down and um god i'm grateful for it today because i needed a breakdown to rebuild but it involved an absolute entire breaking down of who i had become at that point Mm -hmm. um i don't know if that makes any sense but yeah 100 percent. and there's so many threads that i want to pull on there so thank you for sharing and, and obviously revisiting these things you've you've written three books and you know i've got a few questions about those and but just just maybe a few questions about i suppose where you are now if we jump ahead a little bit i'll, I'll kind of come back and forward a bit how have you then found your coping strategies to slow down to maybe have a quieter mind to be more in the moment if, if those are the things you've worked on in the in the or you've identified are you getting closer to achieving that at the moment and how does that look for you no, I'm there. I, I feel it. I just define my life by very different things. I don't like, I don't define and, and for anyone listening to this, I know it sounds a bit hippie and a bit airy fairy. I've n- I've never been more successful than I have in the last five years. I can I can hand on heart tell you that. But in these last five years, uh, more than five years, but certainly in these last five years, I don't define myself on outcomes. It doesn't mean that I'm not driven by wanting to succeed i do i love information i love challenge i live in a very commercial world you know sports agency is very commercial everyone's fighting for that extra dollar here there or everywhere but i don't define myself by it i and i and i li- i i manage clients who are going through the journey i went through mm-hmm. and some of them are really difficult to deal with you know by their own admission and, and people who are very driven are difficult to be around at times and I, I just constantly define myself by what type of partner am I? What type of father am I? What type of ex-husband am I? You know, what type of general human being? What am I doing? How am I serving as best I can in any given scenario? And you know what? In my experience, all the good stuff comes with you when you focus on that. When, whenever I get caught in that trap of getting my head turned by a bit of extra money, I, I get burned by it. Every time, oh, really? every time something comes along and goes, yeah, this yeah. didn't work, did it? And I'm like, yeah, like it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, it's so interesting you say that because a couple of the methods I try to use with some of my players, I, I talk a lot about the definition of success. So I get players to try to write down their definition of success before a match, but that's got nothing to do with the, with the outcome. Absolutely zero. Like you said, it's going, this is what I want to hold myself accountable to when the pressure's at its highest. So I think that's a really interesting thing. And I've started to transfer that into more of a life philosophy as well. And then the second point you said, which I use a lot, is that quite famous photo of, I think it's Michael Phelps coming out the water and Chad LaClosse is next to him and Chad LaClosse is looking across and it's all about running your own race. You know, so often I think we get caught up with everyone's paths crisscrossing ours and we end up going down these other little paths. And it sounds like you're getting that right where, you, where you're starting to run your own race and you're starting to define your levels of success. Am I quite accurate in, in, in kind of putting that across? Very accurate, yeah, and just and knowing that I'm I'm in my my lane, doing the best I can be any given moment, and you know, and, and I 
I don't, I don't think I'm any better than any other human being. I don't think I'm any worse than any other human being. I'm just in my lane. I know I'm pretty good at what I can do. I know, I know when I'm at my best and when I'm not at my best, but I'm just, I'm there focused on what I need to do and how that compares to other people. That's okay. You know, I, I, I'm all good with it, but it's taken me a long, a long time to get there, you know. Well, no, I love that. There's two little threads I want to pull on there. The first one is, again, feel free to answer either one first, is how do you keep the practice going? How do you keep that constant reminder? Is it like a daily ritual? And then the second piece, which might link to your current career and mentoring sports people, how do you also look at those athletes that might be on that hedonic treadmill wanting to be the best of the best, but actually you know, do you need to let them live through that pain and get them to find themselves? So I kind of two very broad questions there. Which one would you like to start with, Luke? <laughs> well, let's go with the, the last one. Okay. Um, you do have to let people run their own journey, you know, and you do. Someone once said to me, which is it's, it's not in a religious context, but don't play God. You know, don't don't go. I, I know what's best for you. Um, I don't know what's best for anyone. I know what's best for me. I don't know what's best for anyone else. And um, sometimes I have to, I, I try and be a beacon for them and be a kind of a, a signpost to say, well, maybe you could have a look at this, uh, you know, and, and maybe give them a, a way of considering things, but I have to let them run their journey. And sometimes even when I know that that is probably heading to some place, it's going to need a bit of help at some point. Wow. Um, because the, 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 the reality is that elite sport, requires a lot it's intense to be the best of of the best is intense you need to be obsessed you need to be self-obsessed you need to be driven those are characteristics which produce great stuff but they can also make you quite lonely in the world at times and um i always feel that my role is just to be by them be close to them you know when they're ready to hear then i can give them that little bit of a signpost Mm. um and i think going back to your first question Part of that, part of being that influence in their life is showing them the daily practice that I kind of go through to keep myself in the place that I'm at. I'm at. And, you know, I, I'm a huge, huge believer in meditation. I'm a huge believer in in continually exploring self-awareness and um, looking and reading and listening to, to you know, people like yourself um, they, they, we've never lived in a world where there's information as available as quickly as it is and, and access it and be careful about what you're consuming and keep be careful about where you're at with different things and mm. you know there's many times when I I'm in scenarios where something doesn't quite go as, as well as I want it to or I know I've got to deliver a bit of difficult news or there's a deal well if this happens and that could happen and I I can sense it in myself and when I do I have to go the thing is I'm not the master of all ceremonies. I can just do what I can do and, and I'm not in total control of the universe. And if something doesn't happen as exactly as I want it, that's okay. We move on and we, we become practical and we move on to the next thing. And I've just found that really works for me. Brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing. It sounds like a lot of um, common crossover. If I'm just going quite personally, yeah, yeah, meditation, huge fan, journaling, morning and evening. I think it's a real powerful process, slowing your mind down, sitting with your thoughts. Um, I, I believe there's a lot of 
I, I've, I've written a lot about stoic wisdom in sport, like how the ancient stoics can help modern athletes about, um, they talk a lot about acceptance. Um, you know, we don't control what happens. We control how we respond, you know, finding that space between stimulus and response, all these little kind of messages. It's, it's, it's some powerful stuff, man. Um, so yeah, no, it sounds, sounds like you're doing really well with your own practices. And, you know, if I'm just reflecting a little bit, yeah, you know, I think I've probably fallen into the trap of trying to help people too much, give them the solution. And actually, you know, you've said it really nice. You've got to maybe observe them on the path of their journey. And I think I heard this quite recently. I think that the difference between knowledge and wisdom is knowledge is obviously the, the cerebral. We can understand it, but actually wisdom is the lived experience of that. And actually sometimes, you know, you, you need to let the people have their wisdom. Don't you? you know, they can have the knowledge, but the wisdom is the key bit. Yeah, and I think, it, I mean, even if you take it down to, sorry, the dogs are barking in the background. Um, uh, if you even take it down to sort of coaching, technical coaching in sport, you know, so there's that kind of push and pull element. And, and especially when you're dealing with, with um, highly talented people, it's kind of how much do you tell them or how much do you help them bring it out of themselves, you know? And, and I think the best coaches I've ever w- worked with or, 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 watched even recently are guys who bring it out of them that the player finds the answer themselves even though the coach might have just helped them get there that's that's a real high level coach and i think for what we're talking about it's the same thing it's not a case of tell mm. you know you need to be doing this you need to be this it's a kind of listen it, 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 it sounds like this is something you want to improve in your life these might be some things that you could do along the way to help you with that and once that person takes some ownership and, and feels a bit of autonomy over what they're doing i think it becomes much more powerful mm, yeah couldn't agree more couldn't agree more um so i'm just going to change tracks ever so slightly here um i mentioned the three books so you've written three books to date the wonderful world of wicked keepers um, i was a wicked fool, <laughs> so that straight away resonated love a little jack russell behind the stumps is the best way isn't it <laughs> um back from the edge mental health and addiction and sports and the life of a sports agent so some pretty impressive achievements there to get that all out um but what i'm curious and was this a bit of a therapeutic process, maybe especially writing the um, and reflecting on the, on the mental health aspect? So could you share your story about the author side of yourself and, and how this actually lends to your mental health? It's a great question because it's been it's been a really positive part of my my life in, in certainly the last five years. It's a weird thing to sort of discover that I like writing at the age of 40 um, and it started with the so that the first book I was meant to write was the life of a sports agent, and I started to write it. But then my um, my partner, my fiance, said to me, "Why don't you write a bit more about your story?" Because a lot of it was was secret at that point. You know, I'd not not very many people knew I'd been in rehab. They didn't know, you know, any any of the kind of the journey I'd been on. And uh, so I contacted my book publishers and said, "Look, I'd, I'd, I'd like I know you're unaware of my story, but I'd, I'd kind of." like to write about and he and john jonathan wright said listen just write the first chapter and send it to me and let's see so i wrote the first chapter of of back from the edge and um uh and i sent it to him and i remember just getting a whatsapp message from him saying just keep writing so then i just and then for me that first book was enormously therapeutic because i was you know i i I remember early on in the book i wrote this kind of i um you know, I, there will be some people who will judge me, um, but there's no power in that judgment. And the book was very much about that. It's kind of, this is who I am and I know it and I'm comfortable with it and I, I live with it and I'm, I'm very happy about the journey I'm on. 
so they were hugely therapeutic but but in the process i actually really enjoyed writing a book and and, and the first book was not very long but it just as a sort of challenge around it and i found that when i write i'm very present you know i'm very lost in it and i and i almost like i don't know playing a musical instrument i really enjoyed it and and I've basically just kept writing, and I and I think I'm actually writing the fourth book at the moment, which might be of interest to you. It's, it's about um, uh, the challenges of elite sports people going into retirement. Um, it's mm-hmm. called um, "When They Stop Cheering" is the title of the book, and um, uh, and I and I was writing a bit this morning actually, and I just I get lost in it, and I and I, I really enjoy it because it's all all the noise of the world just kind of drifts out, and I'm. I'm there just really present with what I'm doing. And um, I'm basically, I, I, I actually met uh, Jonathan, who's the, the, my book publisher, yesterday for lunch. I just said, listen, I'm going to keep writing until you, you email me and just tell me it's enough now. This is rubbish. Stop. And I just keep going. And otherwise, I just keep going. Love it. It's it's your it's your meditative moments. I love it. And and yeah, nowhere near maybe to the level, but yeah, I'm I'm churning out blogs. Yeah, probably two or three a week, like quite in depth. Wow. These links and again, completely that. You know, an hour and a half. I look up and I'm going, wow, that's just gone gone in a in a, in a moment. And that's a, re- a real. I don't know, like reflecting back, and maybe this wasn't for you as well. But as a pro sportsman, that that idea of presence, that idea of of slowing down and and actually deep work and focus. Sometimes I know for myself went missing. Um, I know I'm just jumping back a little bit but as a as an athlete yourself and you said you did everything to excess did you were there any seeds of present mindful moments or do you think you were just flying by the seat of your pants and seeing seeing what happened yeah I don't I honestly don't I don't I don't think I even really knew what being present was I mean I'm sure during particular innings or a particular moment of a game you know you're 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 in that moment in that flow you're very present you know and and part of that flow as a sports person when you're really you know in your rhythm and everything seems in sync it's it's often because you're incredibly present with what you're doing and I certainly you know and I had moments where I definitely felt that but I was never I, I never could kind of sit still with anything you know and kind of be able to breathe and go okay it's where I'm at. Where is it going? It was just like on, 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 you know, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Just no, with no understanding of where, when does this end? You know, or I, I just didn't know. And, and, and I think in, when you're in that mental headspace, you have to grab all the extremes. You know, you have to grab the kind of I'm going to work a lot. And, and then when I turn off that button of working, it's almost as extreme. It's just everything. Well, that was for me. Everything is just completely out of balance. And I, did, I had no kind of, uh, it's like it's like sort of slamming on the accelerator and then just taking a foot off the accelerator and having no control over going, you know, at times now I can go really extreme and really work hard, but then I can just ease back on it rather than that kind of on-off type thing. Mm. Yeah, listen, a couple of threads. I, I definitely want to go down these little rabbit holes with you. Um, first thing, it came to mind, and it was just just as you were speaking there about the retirement piece and writing the book, and uh, yeah, I'd be, be well up for kind of seeing that. Actually, a, a, a pro player, Alison Waters, got to world number two or three, I think. She recently retired, and she's doing a master's study in that exact field. So she's going to interview loads of athletes. I'll include it. And yeah, she's really interested about the retirement and the mindset of you're not in the in the dressing room with the players. But the, the, the reason I'm asking this is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I did hear on the radio, I think it, it was Darren Goff talking about it, something along the lines that, that um, I don't know if it's suicide rates or something like in the, in the cricketing world, 
it's really high. It's, it's, it's disproportionately high in regard to the, in the retirement piece, even when they're playing. Do you know anything about that? Or could you share your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the statistics are that cricket has the highest suicide rate of any any mainstream kind of sport. Um, And it's, you know, cricket in the last 10 years has been incredibly progressive in trying to deal with that, I have to say. Mm. Um, In my time, um, it wasn't so much, right? But that's not that I necessarily was seeking out help but i the the understanding of addiction issues mental health issues is still quite uh, you know early on but since you know in the last certainly in the last 10 years there's been massive progress i think for cricket um you know the answers as to why that's the case we're never going to know entirely but i i remember nasa saying once describing uh test cricket particularly but I, i do feel this is for all elite cricket it's like sitting in an exam every single day. It's like it's like sitting in an exam every day because it's slow. It's quite painful. You know, if you have a difficult day, well, it ain't over in 90 minutes. You're out there for six hours, you know. Um, there's a lot of travel involved. There's a lot of um, hotel life involved, which sounds great, but after a period of time, it's not so great. When players start to have young families, they're away from home. Um, I managed Jimmy Anderson for a long period of time. And, and I know one year, 365 days, he was didn't sleep in his own bed uh, for nearly 270 days of that year. And that's a guy with a young family. Yeah. So the pressure that puts on, you know, see so the sport is putting pressure on, you know, pressure on and on and on, a slow grinding type of pressure. Then the lifestyle can also grind away. And um, maybe that's, that's been a cause for that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you paint paint a real um, yeah, vivid picture there and, and a little bit scary as well. Obviously, being a squash player and being involved in that, yeah, you know, you can be on and off and, you know, your whole tournament can be done in 30 minutes if you have a bad first round and you get back on a plane, you go home. But yeah, like, like that compounding effect of a five-day test match, that uh, is nowhere to hide, isn't there? And it's been, no. well, you're obviously well over like a batsman, you know, a batsman makes that one tiny mistake and they're gone. You know, bowler could maybe afford to make a few more little mistakes, but yeah, it's it's yeah interesting stuff, eh? Um, so I want to just maybe ask you about this word triggers. Triggers for me is quite an interesting word, both you know, maybe in a sporting context, but I'm, I'm zooming out a little bit. Um, but in regard to like addiction and maybe some of the, the things that happen to you, triggers and recognizing them are, are pretty big when it comes to mental health for, for all people. Can you maybe talk about some of your triggers when looking back at your life? You know, anything come to mind when I ask that? Well, I think a bit, I don't know if it, I don't know where to to place it, but it, definitely a big red flag for me in to, to today is, is as appropriate as ever is around control. So it's when when I get absolutely obsessed with controlling something, you know, a process, other people, what someone thinks, what I want someone to say. Mm. Um, I get kind of down this rabbit hole of control where. Uh, it's almost like if everyone just listens to me, we'll be fine. If I'm in that spot, then what tends to happen is that I then am in this rabbit hole of obsessing about it, and then I don't sleep well. And then when I don't sleep well, and, I, and I'm not a massive sleeper, I don't need loads of, I, I could do six or seven hours and I'm fine. But if I'm kind of sleeping three or four hours in a night, then I start to go 
to, to drop down and then all of a sudden for me if my, my mental health gets bad my anxiety my depression flares up I go from someone who can take in lots of lots of different information lots of lots of difficult challenging situations all at once to someone who can't even get out of their bedroom or can't even answer my phone so I go from 100 to zero like that but it started with this this um this trigger of control where I'm obsessing about the outcome so when I'm obsessing about the outcome, I get into this mindset going, well, if everyone just listens to me, we'll get the outcome we require. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's an illusion. It's an illusion that my mind is playing on me. And um, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but 100%. that's a huge one for me. 100%. And and again, yeah, I think, you know, you, you're, you're at the cutting edge of this. But yeah, you know, it's a hard sell to athletes go, you don't control the outcome. You actually have 0% control of the outcome. It's like, but I'm, I'm on the field competing. Of course I have control, but how do we strip it back? And it's again, the process driven mindset going, you know what, let's, let's put in the bucket, our controllables in that other bucket, uncontrollables, get rid of that bucket. How do we d- dig into that control thing? So I, I'm glad you've said that because that is, is such a fundamental one. So my follow-up question is how, how, how good is your awareness becoming of this? Like when you realize you may be leaning into the control factor, you can see those little red flags popping up firstly how good is the awareness secondly what do you try to do to bring yourself back from the ledge there uh, i'm always a work work in progress no no question and, and i'm much better than i was a year ago and i'm sure i'll be much better than i am in a year's time and, and sometimes i can catch it early on so if something doesn't go quite as i want it to do in a process someone's made a decision that i'm not that comfortable i don't like I can catch myself going right now's my time to hijack this whole process and I'm going to I'm going to do this this and this that and I catch myself and I go whoa no just and and a big one for me is faith and I don't that's not a religious faith that's a faith faith in the process faith faith in step by step by step faith in just it will be as it should be type of scenario which I know is incredibly difficult for some athletes to to get their heads around because they're like, no, I don't want to have faith. I want to know. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, but I, I can catch I can catch myself doing it a little bit. But it, but I also think you you know you need loved ones around you who kind of go you know they're aware of it as well and they're like you know darling are you okay at the moment you're not sleeping great you know where's everything at and sometimes mm-hmm. you just need someone quite close to you just to just to, to prod and go you know. Um, where yeah, and sometimes that helps me bring myself out of it. Nice. Reminds me really quickly of the uh, Chinese bamboo tree. Have you come across that story? It's a, it's a beautiful story. It's uh, you know you plant the Chinese bamboo tree seeds, and you need to fertilize and water the soil constantly for for five years. And nothing happens. That first shoot goes above the surface, and it grows ninety feet in five weeks. And this is a true story, by the way. It, like it just explodes in front of your eyes. So so many people want that ninety feet growth in five weeks without putting the five years work of looking after your soil, cultivating because. What's happening beneath the surface? You don't see anything, but the roots are going deep and wide so it can sustain that growth above it. And I think it's a perfect analogy for process-driven approach going, yeah, you know what? Are you turning up? Are you cultivating your soil? Whether that's a balance, a mindfulness piece, whether that's that extra reps in the gym and actually know that you're not going to get the instant gratification of that shoot showing, how can you stay with that? And I think it's a perfect little thing that I'm always trying to remind my athletes on going, are you looking after your soil? That's all I need to say to them. They roll their eyes and go, oh, yes, of course. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's very good. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so last couple of questions, Luke, because I, I know you've been really kind with your time today, but um, looking at your 
um, you know, your, your current job and your sporting hat you're wearing in your professional career. I'm sure you've seen it, but what advice would you give to athletes that want to be the best at all costs? And we might've touched a bit on this, but they're pushing so hard in, in all areas that, that you actually seeing this imbalance, maybe what they're doing. Um, and you probably know it's a little bit unsustainable. I think you have slightly mentioned it, but can we just explore that a bit more? Because I, I'm feeling that's such a common thread in, in athletes, mental health. And that's part of this conversation today. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting one. The phrase "at all costs," um, because and then there might not be an answer for this, but it's kind of it makes me think. You know, what what costs are we talking about here? You know, and and the reality is a kind of athlete. You know, um, not out of control, but just kind of going. They don't really know the answer to that. Um, I, I think the most important thing, and what I what I encourage everyone around me to understand, is that high performance isn't exclusive from being healthy. It it, it doesn't. They can be together. They can work together. You don't have to be a uh, you know killing yourself mentally and therefore performing uh, performing at a high level. They can go together. Um, you know, if anyone wants to listen to anyone talk about it, talk, listen to Michael Phelps. You know, that, that's a guy who is high performance but literally tried to win himself enough medals to make himself feel better and had i think two suicide attempts in between olympic games so his high performance couldn't have been higher yet he was extremely unhealthy and if you know you listen to what he's telling people now is that that's he got that wrong and they can come together and you you look at even we just had wimbledon look at some of the tennis players on the earth at the moment federer uh, Nadal, Djokovic, listen to them speak, their, their grace and their humility and their understanding, their self-awareness. doesn't mean, I don't doubt that they are all extremely driven. They are all extremely hardworking. But there's an understanding that, that they can be healthy at the same time as doing that. Mm. So it, I definitely encourage people to understand that they, you, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Mental health and high performance, they can be together. I also just the other thing I encourage all all my clients to do, especially ones, especially Olympians who come back from Olympics. Olympics is, I just don't know anything like it in elite sport. You train for this one event every four years, and you get one shot at it. And if it goes wrong, you might get another shot in four years. Mm-hmm. I mean, name another sport of that intensity, yeah. um, and and you you're under this kind of path that this might be the greatest your utopia that you know there is that illusion so guys i've had olympic gold medals silver medals bronze medalists guys who've not done well come back and i encourage them all after olympic games to go back to when they first started playing this doing their sport go back to that club go back to um go and watch you know if it's a cricket player go and watch a bit of village cricket you know go and help out with the tees um you know have time with their family Mm. but go back to where it all started because that kid that started that sport wasn't on that hamster wheel. That kid was just enjoying the sport and loving it and, and fell in love with whatever it was. But somewhere along the line, they got on that hamster wheel and they're off. Yeah. And, and being able to bring them back and, and grounding them to what's, you know, what it's all about, I think is so important. Oh, beautiful messages there. A couple of quick little things there. I'm very lucky enough. I'm going to be interviewing a lady called Kath Bishop. Um, she's an Olympic. Oh, girl. yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. And she, she yep. wrote the book called The Long Win, which is very similar to what you talked about. And she talks a lot about getting in that initial training squad for the Olympic Games. And the culture around that was a bit of a win at all cost and a bit of a lots of egos floating around and that and, and how it was so performance driven. And we started speaking very briefly when um, all the gymnastics things started to come unraveled of all these coaches pushing these young athletes to the edge. And, and so I'm really curious to explore that. Like you said, that balance and relationship, it's not binary. It's not we're like really successful and then mindfulness and, and peace and love have to be down here. It's, it's, it's how we can kind of dovetail them together. And, you know, I've given good examples of Federer, Djokovic, Nadal talk, talk well about it. Michael Phelps now really sharing with it, which is, which is really great. Um, and I've just lost my train of thought. There was a second follow-up question that I can't quite remember in a way, but I think um, I might come back to that in a sec, but I think maybe in, in one of your, maybe if there's a, like a little final message or maybe in closing, um, what would you like sport to do more for the mental health and well-being of athletes? Uh, I know you spoke about that and we did mm. some research on you. I think you're quite big on getting that in the front mm. and center. What's, what, how do you see it progressing in the next five, 10, 15 years about getting this balance right? Yeah, um, how I see it progressing, that's, that's a difficult one because it varies from sport to sport and, um, and there are some huge dynamics in the sports industry. You know, in, in, a day, in a day and age where the viewer or the consumer is as fickle as they've ever been, you know, in my day, if TV program was on at 7.30 on a Tuesday night, we'd watch it at 7.30 on a Tuesday night, whereas now I watch my kids, they just, you know, watch whatever they want, whatever they want. That's that's the world we live in. Yeah, it's that instant dopamine hits, isn't it? It's just constant feel-good factors, touch of a button, you've got Netflix, Spotify, whatever you want. And anyway, I, I, I could go exactly. on a whole down there, but please continue. <laughs> yeah, but if you look at the sports industry, you know, sports industry still holds. It's why the broadcasting rights are always so valuable. If Manchester United playing Man City, you're not going to watch that on, you know, replay. You're going you're gonna to want to watch that. So it's, it's still one of these things that can captivate the viewer more profoundly than, than almost anything else. You know, breaking news in the sports industry. Um, so it's got this power. And I, my message to the sports industry always, always has got to be, that we have to understand that we have young people's lives in our hands. And when sport is finished, they have a lot of life left to live. If someone is lucky enough and retires at the age of 35, that in the grand scheme of things is very, very young. And we have to be able to have an understanding that they are worth more than just what they're doing on the field for you. And if you start to see problems, but they're still doing well on the field for you, that is not a reason not to to reach out and try and help them. But the amount of times it's like, well, they're doing great on the field, so let's just leave them. That's the way they live their life or that's the way they're kind of getting on with it. Um, I just think as a sports industry, whatever sport you're in, that holding that responsibility in a sacred way is hugely important. Otherwise, and the sports industry will carry on doing this, by the way, yeah. but the rate at which we do it is in our hands. Otherwise, we're going to be pumping out people with mental health and addiction issues for years, for years. We're going to go trap them in this high performance, you're chasing utopia, and then we're going to spit them out into retirement and say, good luck with that. And then we go, oh, they, they miss, they, we say things like, well, they missed the dressing room. Or is actually, you know, there's a whole backstory. more in depth, yeah, whole backstory that we could have 
you know, help them a little bit more along the way. And that I just, that's what I really wish for the sports industry. Absolutely beautifully said. And, and yeah, really strong, wise words. And I think that's very similar to what, what, when I heard Kath talk about this, she was like, you know, the media sensationalized those big success stories. Um, I think she referred slightly to the Johnny Wilkinson, like he only felt happy when the whistle started and the whistle ended that 90 minutes or for 80 minutes in rugby that was his his place. And actually a lot of what around that, and he talks a lot about his mental health, which is really interesting because we saw him as this perfect poster boy, you know, kind of up there with David Beckham. But he said his only true happiness was in that, at that 80 minutes. And he was trying to replicate that in lots of parts of his life, which is, you know, because of the media sensationalizing all that he did and or didn't do at certain points. And um, just very finally, I do want to mention this because I had my train of thought back. Uh, I wrote a blog recently called um, Are You Having Fun? And I went as far to say as it's probably one of my most important blogs, maybe not my best one, but it's all about the intrinsic versus extrinsic forces. So, and you said it with those athletes going back to their roots, um, you know, I think once you get to a certain level, sport becomes really serious. You know, it, it, it's, we, we play sport. We don't work sports. That's how I started the blog. And, you know, and, and we, a lot of these athletes sit in that extrinsic column results, status, validation, prize money, selections, fear of failure, all this. And actually like how you can get them to transverse back into the intrinsic side and actually going back to the roots, remembering why you started playing, reframing the situation. What are the intrinsic factors there? So yeah, I just wanted to kind of, that was the one train of thought. No, no, hundred percent. Can I just add on that? Cause I think I believe in that enormously. I mean, look at the England cricket team at the moment and the way they're playing. If, if people follow cricket, you know, McCullum, um, Brennan McCullum and Ben Stokes have taken over and you look at the team, I mean, they're playing high risk cricket, but you do look at them and go, do you know what? These are the guys who are just playing like they played when they were kids. Exactly. You know, they're, they're playing like they were playing in the back garden, just, hey, I'm going to try and hit this ball for six. And, and they that's what they're doing. And they're doing it at the highest level. And, and they, the, you know, I, they will have a slip up at some point, but so far they've produced four outrageously good performances, which okay. in, in some summers might do enough for a summer. So it's, it's that moving them to that intrinsic place that you're talking about where they're doing it for the enjoyment like they did as kids. They're not doing it because it's paying their mortgage or, or you know, getting, getting them some validation from extra likes on Instagram. They're doing it because they just enjoy doing it. And um, I think that's hugely powerful. And and just we we hope that maybe something like the press don't get on their backs when it doesn't go quite right. You know, all of a sudden three lost matches, all of a sudden Brendan's on the on the kind of the heap of getting fired. It's like that's maybe the message you said about how you know there could be a bit of a balance there. And so yeah, let, let's Definitely. hope we can play with that freedom and, and crack on with it. Um listen, Luke Sutton, this has been an absolute delight. I've loved this. I probably could probably sit for three hours here and talk. <laughs> you probably won't want to, but I was interested in, in rehab and going to the Priory. Maybe a future podcast if you've got time in the future to discuss. Anytime, yeah, no no worries. No right. worries. Anytime. Luke, thank you so much. Absolute treat and some really powerful messages. Yeah. Um, have a great rest of your day and we'll keep in touch, I'm sure. 100%. Thank you. Take it easy.